0: Listener-supported,
1: WNYC Studios.
2: This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in Fritanzi Vega.
3: And on Wednesday, President Joe Biden issued a warning. Crime is hist- historically rises during the summer. And as we emerge from this pandemic with a country opening back up again, the traditional summer summer spike may be more pronounced than it usually would be.
2: Facing pressure to respond to the rise in violent crime and homicides, the president met with a group of mayors this week and then gave a speech outlining his agenda for addressing crime, including stricter enforcement of gun laws.
3: Today, the department is announcing, as they just did, a major crackdown on stem the flow of guns used to commit violent crimes. It's zero tolerance for gun dealers who willfully violate key existing laws and regulations. Let me repeat, zero tolerance. More support for violence intervention programs. These are local programs that utilize trusted messengers, community members and leaders to work directly with people who are most likely to commit gun crimes or become victims of gun crimes. And increased support for law enforcement. The cities experienced an increase in gun violence, are able to use the American Rescue Plan dollars to hire police officers needed for community policing and to pay their overtime. Mayors will also be able to buy crime-fighting technologies like gunshot detection systems to better see and stop gun violence in their communities. So see,
2: it's on this last issue that many members of Biden's own party may have an issue. While many of the most progressive members of the Democratic Party have been calling for resources to be diverted from police departments and towards social services, the president has stood behind his views that law enforcement is a key part of the solution to keeping communities safe. As other journalists have pointed out, these calls bring to mind when President Biden attempted to address violent crime in the U.S. as a senator.
3: This president is very, very straightforward and simple. He knows there are two basic steps here. One step is you must take back the streets. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people.
2: If you don't recognize his voice, that is Biden speaking on the Senate floor back in 1993. But while campaigning for president, Biden admitted that parts of the 1986 and 1994 crime bills that he helped to write were mistakes, including mandatory minimums for drug-related offenses, which led to major racial disparities in sentencing. But now, one year after last summer's racial justice uprisings, Biden and other Democrats are returning to other components of those decade-old crime bills, like hiring more police officers and talking about zero tolerance. So are these law enforcement measures doomed to fail again? And what is the political strategy here? Joining me now to answer that and more is Andrea Headley, Assistant Professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and Visiting Scholar of Policing, Race and Crime at the National Police Foundation. Andrea, welcome to The Takeaway.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Also with us is Jonathan Allen, political reporter for NBC News. Jonathan, great to have you here as well.
1: It's great to be here, Dr. Harris-Perry.
2: So, um, Professor Headley, I want to start with you. And I just want to make sure that when we're talking about violent crime, we're sort of all on the same page about what it is we are seeing here. So, you know, we're hearing that there's a spike. Um, Can you tell me sort of where we're seeing an increase in crime and what kind of crime we're seeing an increase in? Yeah, and that's
0: a great question. And so, Specifically, we have seen an increase in um, homicides, right? Gun violence more particularly. While there has been small increases in, in other types of violent crime, for instance, thinking about robbery, assault, um, it's much smaller increases, right? And so you really when people are referring to this spike, again, it's it's thinking about the homicides, the murders, the gun violence. But I have to caveat that with, historically, we are still at a pretty um low level of violent crime and and, and murders in particular, if we think back to the 1990s, although we are seeing this spike from uh, 2020 in particular. And in terms of actually looking at where it's happening, while we have seen increases across the United States, we are seeing um, particular increases, again, in the big cities and the the cities that have historically been plagued by this that are under-resourced, disinvested in, large populations of color, and so forth.
2: Thank you. I, I so appreciate you putting that into context for us a little bit that we're seeing an increase now, but um, we're still talking about a national murder rate of about five murders per 100,000 people, right? And just to put that in context, COVID has killed 183 Americans per every 100,000 people. Jonathan, this is not only a uh, Crime crisis, a governing crisis. It's a political crisis for President Biden, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Um, there's probably uh, nothing that's a more effective uh, political advertisement for your opponents than a rise in crime uh, during your term. And President Trump saw the beginnings of this rise in crime. Uh, the Democrats didn't really hammer him on it, uh, but they were, um, you know they they were busy defending themselves, uh, Biden out there saying that he wasn't going to defund and disband police departments uh, back in the 2020 election. I think Biden has always been very attuned to the politics of crime and criminal justice. And uh, that is as true today as it ever was. And that's, I think, why you're seeing him focus on this uh, before Republicans get a chance to get a full head of steam going against him and, and sort of portray him as the president of rising crime.
2: Yeah, I mean, all of those of us who live in um, swing states were bombarded with messages that a Biden America would be an unsafe America. And so it has been fascinating to watch sort of how we're now talking about what's going on um, around violent crime. So Jonathan, I want to come back to you on this a bit, because yes, the president is clearly attuned to this politically. Um, And part of what he's talking about and, and asking states to do, encouraging them to do, is to use money from the American rescue plan that's already kind of gone out to address these root uh, causes of crime. So what would that look like in practice in states and
1: cities? I mean 1994 called and <laughs> they want their <laughs> uh, their I'm crime sorry. legislation back. <laughs> I mean um it's it's really not the same as the 94 crime bill but uh, but some of the um some of the sort of solutions here uh match that right an increase in um funding for police departments rather than the federal government saying we're going to give you money you know here for you know hiring seven police officers or we're going to give you money in the old days it was we'll give you more money if you build more prisons that that biden has kind of done away with um but What they're doing is saying, look, the money in the American Rescue Plan that went to states and local governments can be used for police, which gives Biden some protection from uh, political attacks that he's defunding because he's, in fact, funding, uh, and then each of the jurisdictions can decide on their own. Uh, But the other pieces that we're seeing here are, you know, money for intervention. Some of the things that, um, you know, as uh, this debate has uh, evolved over time, some of the things that people who want to defund the police, quote unquote, defund the police, are actually asking for, which is not shifting what they would would have wanted before was to shift money from uh, cops on the beat toward intervention programs, toward mental health counseling, those kinds of things. And instead, what this bill does is it will provide more money to hire police and also provide a lot more money for, um, you know, I guess the best possible term for it is kind of wraparound services. And I always think back to 1994, in the debate over midnight basketball. I don't know if you remember that.
2: Oh, <laughs> the, uh... I remember it very well, <laughs> yes. And, and look, so, so let's actually, let's go to those two. Let's just, we're going to use midnight basketball as a, um, as a sort of just standard bearer here. But, but Andrea, walk me through those two pieces, more cops on the beat and, um, and midnight basketball as sort of things to resource. What does your research tell us about how additional spending on either of those two kind of buckets, um, impacts crime rates?
0: So, what the research shows about policing and 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 the impact with crime rates there is that more cops on the streets can matter for 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 reducing crime. Generally, um, that said, we also know that police don't actually spend much of their time on crime crime prevention. Right, more often their time is spent responding to calls for service. Um, and and the impacts that we do see with regards to um, crime reductions from, from police is really not consistent across all cities. And so really the cities with the largest populations of Black people don't have those same crime reduction benefits. And so we also know that with that comes a lot of the harms associated with policing presence. And so it's really about the types of strategies that they're employing when they're policing communities, right? Are you doing stop and question and frisking, right? Are you engaging in problem solving with partnerships in the community, right? Those are very different approaches. And so that matters with regards to the other bucket, though, thinking about, well, not necessarily midnight basketball specifically, but thinking about wraparound services, there is a good body of research that shows that there are so many other ways that we can also reduce crime, right? And so there's comprehensive approaches from thinking about providing social services to hospital-based intervention programs, job programs, um, the importance of nonprofits and, and community stability overall, right? All of these things have been shown effective in reducing crime. And so for me, it's really about thinking about the trade-offs between strategies, thinking about what policing are, police are actually doing, when they're gonna be hired, when they're going to be in these neighborhoods and how to reduce those harms, while also really amping up the um, kind of community-based interventions.
2: So I feel like you've laid out for us a couple of, um, again, big buckets or sets of ideas that are deeply complex, right? So one is, what is it that police are actually doing during their time, right? Right. What do they spend their time doing? And is that connected to these actual questions of what we might think of as street violence? But I think also what the Midnight Basketball conversation always brought to mind was a, a set of questions about who is committing crime, right? And, and the notion around um, Midnight Basketball, even if it was implicit, is that it's young Black men who simply have nothing else to do and end up spending their time engaging in violence. So, so Jonathan, l- let me come to you on this as mayors who might be a little bit closer you know obviously to their cities and to what is happening than the federal government how have you seen them um, acting relative to this spike again on our on our buckets of like addressing what police are doing with their time and what young people are doing with their time
1: I mean, they all have very different uh, responses to this have you uh, live in New York, it's one response. If you live in Chicago, it's another. If you live in Detroit, it's a third. I, I think that they are confused or maybe confused is the wrong word, but a little bit at a loss uh, for what it is they can do to control crime. And, and you know, from my reading, and the professor's probably better to talk about this, but from my reading, um, it's not entirely clear why we have major surges and, or why crime falls precipitously, but it's probably not as related to the politicians as the politicians would like to think.
2: (laughs) So Andrea, let me come to you. As Jonathan was saying, it could be that these crime rates, rising and falling, have less to do with politicians than they imagine. Talk to me about what it may have to do with relative to communities. So in particular, I guess I'm thinking the trauma, the loss, the distress that so many communities are feeling economically and socially in the wake of the pandemic Is that part of what's going on here or do we have any evidence about that?
0: Right. And so I think you really did hit it on the head. And I, and I agree totally with Jonathan's point. While we don't have clear kind of indications of what always causes crime at a specific time point, we do know historically and, and from kind of recently that the economic instability, the devastation, the loss of connection with people, the the shutting down of community based institutions and, and um, people feeling like they can't rely on the government during the pandemic because of a lot of the devastation that happens has definitely had um, tolls on communities at large, um, and then specific neighborhoods have experienced those impacts much more than others. And we do know that a lot of those community factors are related to places where we have historically seen increases in crime. And so there is a lot when we think about Um, The community characteristics, but also the experiences that the community is going through and and the trauma, as you say, that leads to people um, committing crime or engaging in criminal behavior because they, whether it's them not feeling they have another alternative, needing to, you know, not trust uh, criminal justice institutions and so relying on other measures or what have you.
2: So so Jonathan, we talked a little bit here about the president, we've talked a little bit about um, communities and a bit about mayors, but what about Congress? I mean, they're the ones who are going to be up for re-election in mass very soon. Um, what have we been hearing from Dems and Republicans about how they may be thinking about this rise in violent crime impacting them politically?
1: Well, you've certainly... Um seen some efforts on Capitol Hill and, and uh, they mirror what's going on with this transportation and infrastructure bill um, in that, in that there's, you know, now a description of a framework and maybe at some point they'll fill in all the details in terms of policing reform um, and and some of that side of it. Uh, what you're not hearing a lot of in Congress is, um, you know, what I would describe as uh as prescriptive efforts to uh, to really address the core causes of crime, and you know, I, I mean, everybody's aware of it. Um, and you are you'll hear Republicans that uh, this will ramp up over time if the the violent crime statistics stay where they are. They'll hit Biden for it. They'll hit the Democrats in Congress for it. Um, And, you know, maybe at some point the Democrats in in one chamber or the other will try to pass legislation to address it so they can go home and say that they passed legislation to address it. But I think largely what they look at from the federal level is are they providing the resources to the mayors and to the governors to uh, to be able to uh, do policing and some of these community intervention steps Um, in the ways that they would like and and, i mean i think you heard the president talk about that the other day certainly um in the stuff that administration officials were saying around his announcement that you know some some of these programs will you know maybe uh maybe the right way to look at it is a thousand flowers bloom or, or whatever you know or each each one will be sort of catered to its own community and maybe they can learn something from that
2: well, Jonathan, you name checked the infrastructure um, package. <laughs> Do you want to just give us a oh, quick I got myself beat in on trouble that? With it, I... Yeah, no, just give us a quick beat on that because clearly that is the other, you know, big piece sort of working its way through these sets of political relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean, they are trying to build, um, you know, the, a, a route through the Alps, and and they've laid down a, co- a couple of uh, a couple of bricks and and perhaps have a blueprint, but. Um, they are a long way from getting an infrastructure package done, particularly with President Biden saying yesterday that he won't sign that bill unless he gets a uh, a sidecar that has all the other pieces that he wants in there in terms of uh, climate change and, um, and money for, for elder and child care. I don't think that's going to be a problem for him because if he doesn't get both bills, he's not going to get one bill, so... <laughs> Um, you know, there's there's really little margin for error for the Democrats, and right now, I think you would have to look at what's going on and conclude that uh, even if um, even if they are able to get both of them, that it, they would rely on uh, on some Republican support in the Senate to get it done, and um, that may erode uh, as as this battle gets more pitched, and as this Speaker Nancy Pelosi tries to figure out what can get through her chamber, she's only got. Uh, I think four votes she can lose and still pass bills. So um, this is not as straightforward as an emergency supplemental spending bill to address COVID-19, you know, with vaccines, even though that carried a lot of other items in it. That was a lot easier sell, I think, than, than a transportation bill.
2: So, Professor Headley, let me come to you on this, because as I'm listening to Jonathan within the connections between both sort of the 1994 crime bill questions, these new questions about both infrastructure and crime and what's happening in our communities and cities, I'm just reminded that it feels like there was a time that Americans' willingness to spend in order to address root causes of our sort of collective suffering may have been different. Um, So I'm thinking sort of post- or during World War II, coming out of the Depression, right now, as you're looking at sort of our landscape, are there generational divides between sort of how Black and brown elders and young people are thinking about both what the problem is and what the solutions are?
0: I definitely think there are differences in how... um Black and brown people, although not a monolithic group, across generations and age differences examine this. But often I feel like the questions that we're asking usually just rely on policing or incarceration as the only alternative. And so when we examine that, often we see that there are people who usually just still then favor, yes, we want more police, we want safer streets, et cetera. Whereas I think what we see with the younger groups is that they are really thinking beyond that question. Can we really envision something that we haven't had in the past? Um, and I think that's really where the differences come in. But the similarity is that everyone wants safety. Everyone wants community safety. And it's just about trying to provide the best alternative for for the community that's seeking that.
2: Andrea Headley is an assistant professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and visiting scholar of policing, race and crime at the National Police Foundation and Jonathan Allen, a political reporter for NBC News. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you
4: at radio lab we love nothing more than nerding out about science neuroscience chemistry but
0: but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories stories about policing or
2: politics country music hockey sex of bugs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers
2: and hopefully make you see the world anew.
4: Radio Lab Adventures on the Edge of What We
3: Think We Know.
0: Wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On Thursday, President Joe Biden visited Raleigh, North Carolina, as part of his administration's push to restart the nation's stalled vaccination efforts. Over
3: 150 million Americans have gotten fully vaccinated and they're safe and protected now, including against the Delta variant. They're getting back to living their lives and spending time with their loved ones. But we need more people to get fully vaccinated to finish the job. That's why I'm here.
2: In recent weeks, North Carolina and other states across the U.S. have experienced a meaningful decline in overall vaccination rates. Only 52 percent of adults in North Carolina are fully vaccinated, according to the state's Department of Health and Human Services. I'm one of them. Woohoo! Now, as part of his visit, President Biden toured mobile vaccination units and met with frontline workers and volunteers working to get their communities vaccinated. For more on this, we're joined now by one of the people doing this work in North Carolina. Elizar Posada is the acting president and CEO of El Centro Hispano. Elizar, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thank you so much for having me and congrats on getting your vaccine.
2: Listen, I have to say, you know, I was genuinely a little nervous, um, you know, before Mm -hmm. I had it, but my husband decided to do it and I was like, well, I mean, we've been down this whole pandemic road together. Let's go. But the sense of relief I had, the moment that even had that I had the first shot was was really, I mean, I I was surprised by how, how much better I felt in terms of being able to go out and do things. What is the reluctance that you're hearing from folks? Or is it about reluctance?
4: Yes, so what we hear a lot in our community uh, is not so much hesitancy around the science, but about the institutions uh, that are given this vaccine, right? A lot of our community members, primarily the Hispanic and immigrant community members that we serve, uh, have questions about where is their information going? You know, is uh, taking this vaccine going to affect me in any way? Uh, Primarily those who may not be uh, citizens of the country, right? So that's a lot of hesitancy we've heard, not so much science, but the institutions.
2: It's such a good point, though, right? That that those are actually well placed fears and concerns from a community where actually the you know state government, the federal government, many local law enforcement have not exactly built trust in recent years.
4: They haven't, and we just ended uh, four years of very traumatic experiences and rhetoric against our community, uh, not including the years before that, that North Carolina is, has been trying to pass anti-immigrant legislation. Uh, it's no doubt that our community has a lot of fear and distrust against governments. So that's where you know organizations like El Centro come into play. We know our community, the community knows us, uh, and we can really build that trust around folks and educate, because that's really where all all this hesitancy lies, is who has this and how do I know that it's safe for me. And yet this
2: is also the community that has been hardest hit here in North Carolina.
4: It has. Like our community members have been on the front lines. uh, And from the very beginning of this pandemic, right, a lot of the information was not given out in a language that our community can understand. It's one thing to have something in Spanish. It's another complete thing to have something culturally appropriate in a language that folks can read, understand. uh, And specifically those who are still going out every single day, uh, working to make sure that everyone who's staying at home is able to stay at home. Uh, So this is why we have been pushing so hard, not just for uh, equitable information at the beginning, testing that is is placed in uh, places our community can access, but now in this vaccine, taking the vaccine to their neighborhoods, to the mobile home parks, the apartment complexes, because we need to go to our community.
2: I feel like I want to just go yell from the rooftops. Um, you know, putting it in Google Translate for Spanish is not the same thing as having um, relevant uh, information and, uh, and spokespeople. So talk to me about what it is that your organization is doing that makes this information relevant.
4: Yes, please yell that out as loud as you can. And we've been trying <laughs> to do that for decades. Uh, so one of the things that we've been doing is getting the information, of course, from the CDC and all the trusted, uh, you know, folks who know about this, right, the scientists, you know, the, the ones that actually know, and uh, working with our community members to make it into digestible pieces of information. Uh, so we've launched a full campaign, you know, NC Unida Contra el Virus, uh, that breaks down all this information, everything from the recommendations to uh, the information around testing, and the information now about the vaccines and the three different ones, uh, and putting, again, in language that our community can understand. So that's bringing in folks who may or may not uh, graduated uh, high school or middle school in their own home countries, but they they've been able to to learn some, right? And also using these PSAs and radio stations where our community is listening to, right? La Mega, La Grande, some of those local radio stations, and doing. PSAs in Spanish around information that is accurate.
2: I had a, a sort of extended conversation with an African-American gentleman in his 50s yesterday, and he was asking me, was I vaccinated? And he was, you know, someone who works directly with the public. And he kept telling me he, that he was afraid um, and that and that he he was genuinely nervous about what would happen to his body. Like, I now know way too much about his medical history because he told me everything about how frequently he's been sick or not been sick. And I felt kind of helpless because it did feel like he was expressing genuine fear. How do we overcome fear like that?
4: one of the big things that we've done is involve some of the doctors at higher levels here in the, in the counties, right. That, uh, also speak Spanish or Hispanic or Latinx, and have them come on board to like a Facebook live or come out, come with us to, uh, one of the community outreaches, uh, so that they can have deeper conversation with folks because in our community, we value, uh, you know, not just intelligence, but we know, uh, there's a certain level of standing that comes with being a doctor right uh, mm-hmm. in nothing ex communities, right. So we have someone who's like, I studied this, I went to school for this, I got you, here's what the, the, the reality of the situation and talking to them as a you know a, a person, to person as a community member, not as a scientific uh, symposium on uh, mRNA or whatever. Right. But having those (laughs) real conversations with people is where it stands. And uh, of course, our community health workers are trained on uh, almost everything when it comes to the vaccine. Right. But we still bring in those medical professionals that our community can recognize uh, for those deeper conversations. Um, And Facebook Lives have been a godsend.
2: Now, but what about President Biden? So here he was in our state. Does that make a difference? Does that carry weight with community?
4: Well, I can tell you from the moment we posted some of those pictures and let folks know that the president was here and shared some of his remarks with our community members, those posts have blown up, right? And Hmm. uh, part of what we see is, again, folks recognizing that things are not going to change from from one moment to the next, right? Not everyone is going to feel comfortable attending, uh, you know, uh, or going to a government building. But seeing the president and administration taking uh, steps forward to build trust, to talk about the importance of reaching communities of color and Latinx and immigrant communities, uh, talking about putting resources into uh, this this movement, really, uh, of getting people vaccinated, goes a long way. I've received a lot of messages from folks who who know me around the area who are impressed. And uh, while there's they they know that there's a lot of work to be done, uh, you know, there's still a lot of other things like an immigration reform and uh, dealing with a lot of other uh, issues that are important to our community. Having a president that takes time shows up and talked about the importance of our community uh, is a milestone compared to what they've seen before.
2: Eleazar Posada is the acting president and CEO of El Centro Hispano. Eleazar, thank you so much for joining
4: us. Thank you so much for having me.
2: this past Tuesday, New York City voters cast their ballots in the much-anticipated Democratic primary for mayor. While a general election is still months away, the winner of the Democratic primary is expected to come out on top in November. Right now, Eric Adams, former NYPD officer and Brooklyn Borough President, is the frontrunner, followed by progressive activist and attorney Maya Wiley in second and former sanitation commissioner Catherine Garcia in third. Now, I just want to note right here for the sake of full transparency that before beginning my work as guest host for The Takeaway this summer, I publicly supported my friend and colleague, Maya Wiley, in this race. Now, the reason that we're waiting on a winner? Ranked choice voting. In fact, a winner isn't expected to be announced before July 12th. And we're going to dive into that and so much more with the unofficial mayor of New York City himself, Brian Lehrer, host of WNYC's The Brian Lehrer Show. Brian, I am so happy to have you with us.
5: Thank you for asking me. I'm so pleased to be with you, Melissa.
2: And I'll just say this, perhaps also in the spirit of transparency, that there was a great deal of cheering and excitement here on the Takeaway team when we learned that you were going to be joining us.
5: Well, I'm not the unofficial mayor of anything. I'll just say that. Just happy to be here
2: much of the money for candidates for this race actually came from mega donors outside of New York City and that many of those best funded candidates had single digit showings in this crowded primary so i'm wondering why is it that so many non new Yorkers care about the nyc mayor's race and what is it they apparently don't understand about it
5: in my personal opinion It was outrageous, some of the funding that was coming into this campaign, and you're right, it wound up being mostly for candidates who did not do well at all. Sean Donovan, former HUD secretary under President Obama, uh, donated or got donated $2 million from his father at one point. Another candidate, Ray McGuire, who was a Citigroup vice president, uh, raised all kinds of money from outside or had uh, independent expenditures on his behalf from all kinds of people outside, including most notably from uh, the head of the Hess Oil Company. So there was big oil money in his campaign. But you're right, Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire did not do well at all. So money does not always buy success in politics, I think we're both happy to say.
2: So so let's just back up, say, four months. And, um, you know, if I came to you four months ago and said, you know, give me a sense of where you think this race is going, what it is that's on the minds of New Yorkers, and therefore which candidates, you, you know, you might think would be in the top three, would it have been these three?
5: Yeah, it probably would have been these three. I mean, I think there's been a tension in the race between whether this is more of a social justice moment or more of a gun violence problem moment in New York City. And the city seems to have chosen a gun violence problem moment. So I don't think it's surprising that Eric Adams is in the lead at this point. He's been well known in the city since the 1990s, first as a reformer within the police department, and then as a New York state senator, and for the last eight years, the Brooklyn Borough president. So he was a frontline candidate to begin with, and he ran a very smart campaign, portraying himself as kind of the missing link between pro-police politics and criminal justice reform politics. And Maya Wiley, the civil rights attorney, and well known around the country for her many appearances on MSNBC, not surprising to me that uh, she's coming in second.
2: So let's dig into this question around police reform and Eric Adams becoming, um, you know, this. It's a nice language, right? The the missing link. Given what we know about um, sort of where we are as a as a country, as a state, as a city, is this a message that will hold?
5: I think that's gonna be. Maybe the most interesting question, if Eric Adams is in fact elected, and only time will tell. As the polls showed crime emerging as the leading issue, he built his campaign very much around no defunding the police and getting ready to crack down on guns on the street. On a personal level, he campaigned very much on his own story along those lines, being a police misconduct victim as a young person himself, but also losing people close to him to civilian crime. And he ran as the kind of missing link, you know, the working class candidate of essential workers. And he seems to have done extremely well in the most black and brown neighborhoods of the city. In fact, in national politics... Democrat versus Republican, right? We're a country largely divided by race nationally, I think it's accurate to say. In New York, where almost everyone is a Democrat, I think we're a city divided by age. The Maris poll, taken shortly before the election, found Adams winning comfortably among people over 45, but Wiley winning among people under 45 And Adam's only coming in third. And that seemed to cross racial lines.
2: How did race show up um, in this
5: campaign? Race always shows up in campaigns, even though people sometimes like to say race shouldn't show up in campaigns and there shouldn't be. Racial appeals. If you look at the history of New York City, back when the dominant voting groups were Irish and Italian and Jewish, there were always the Irish candidate, the Jewish candidate, the Italian candidate who would get more votes from their groups uh, than any other group. One thing interesting early in the race was uh, the early emergence of Andrew Yang. Uh, who of course is Asian American, as an early front runner, he faded as the campaign went on, but there was a potential historic first there as an Asian American mayor, uh, potentially. And certainly he seems to have gotten a big turnout and a big concentration of votes from Asian American uh, New Yorkers. And people are very aware that 30% or so probably the largest share of any individual group uh, of primary voters is black, and so there was a lot of appeal to what people uh, thought would be black people's interests, and that's where the divide on police reform came in, and again, by age, both Maya Wiley and Eric Adams were very much trying to make an appeal as an authentic black candidate and for the moment, at least, until all this rank choice voting kicks in, Eric Adams kind of won that debate.
2: So Brian, let's talk about rank choice voting. This is part of the reason, right, that we don't know yet who's won this primary.
5: Correct. And they're saying probably the week of July 12th is when we'll know because of various rounds of rank choice and absentee ballot counting. So this is a complicated process by which of the 13, and believe it or not, there were 13 candidates on the ballot for the Democratic nomination for mayor of New York. Each one has to get eliminated one by one by one. The one who comes in 13th gets eliminated first. The people who voted for that candidate, their second choice, third choice, fourth choice, then get distributed. And they're going to go through 13 rounds of that before they have an ultimate winner, it seems. So talk
2: about how that affected um, the actual campaigning, because it was an interesting sort of, you know, vote for me second that you only see in a ranked choice voting situation.
5: That's right. One benefit of ranked choice voting is that it's supposed to result in a less polarized and more issue oriented campaign as candidates try to remain acceptable as a second or third choice to voters who don't choose them first. And we did see some of that, especially a final week alliance between Andrew Yang and candidate Catherine Garcia that could still potentially wind up in Garcia, who came in third, getting so many second place votes from Yang supporters that she catches up with Eric Adams if he didn't get enough second place votes.
2: So. It is meant to focus in on issues. It's supposed to allow folks to, to have both kind of a strategic vote and, you know, what we might think of as sort of, you know, voting their heart's desire. But isn't it also possible that the, the ultimate candidate that emerges is someone that, that very few had as their first choice?
5: Yes, but that would happen anyway in this crowded field, if the current uh, percentages hold up once the absentee ballot trove is counted, Adams is in first place, but he only got about 32% of the vote. Somehow you have to get to 50% to to have an ultimate winner. And under the old system, if nobody got more than 50%, the top two finishers would have a runoff election. And Turnout for these runoff elections has tended historically to be really low as average citizens lost interest and only the most politicized people would go back to the polls another time and choose the nominee. So this way, supporters of ranked choice voting say everybody who votes in the primary and, for example, votes their heart for a lower-down candidate first but then puts a more realistic choice second or third gets a say— And who the ultimate winner is, even if they weren't your first choice, just by showing up to vote one time.
2: So this was the first time that ranked choice voting was was used in New York City in decades. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, here we are in the midst of multiple public education campaigns, including, you know, vaccination and all of these other things. Were the callers to your show, for example, well informed about how it worked before the election?
5: Well, the callers to my show tend to be the politically obsessed. Huh? And so they tended to be pretty well informed. But critics say when you look at the population over overall, it's confusing. And because since the computer crunches the rank choice numbers eventually to get to a winner by pressing a computer button and watching the numbers spin... Critics say it could make voters suspicious of how the system might be getting manipulated in this era of people being suspicious of government. So there's that suspicion of, or there's that criticism of ranked choice voting. And yeah, a lot of people were confused. But when you come right down to it, it's not all that complicated. People get to list up to five candidates in their order of preference. And if your first choice candidate gets eliminated, your next choices get distributed in a ranked choice pattern like we described before. So it's not that complicated. Ultimately, it's pick your favorite one, pick your second favorite one, down through five if you go that far.
2: So we know that voters were telling pollsters and um, in in a variety of other kind of public communications, they were saying that the issue at the top of the list for them uh, is gun violence, um, or as you were saying, that they were framing increased violent crime as a gun violence problem. What else is on the minds of New Yorkers, um, and what is it they're, they're going to use to judge um, the quality of their next
5: mayor? Well, I said earlier that there was this kind of, choice between whether it's a social justice moment or a crackdown on crime moment, and Eric Adams is trying to be the missing link candidate between the two. Um, Wiley emphasized social justice over um, crime and is running second. But interesting to me, to the question you asked, is that here we are, a city with a 10% unemployment rate still after COVID much higher than the national average, and nobody ran centrally on economic recovery or really economic justice in the long term. The media narrative got flattened, in my opinion, into this crime versus police reform story, and so the longer-term economic injustices, the longer-term economic disparities in this city that helped get bill de blasio elected eight years ago um kind of got shut out of the media narrative and a lot of the campaigns uh the candidates mouths because they realized everybody wanted to hear about crime and i think that's a shame
2: yeah and of course we know that um, those economic justice issues are often profoundly connected to issues of crime right so so Even talking about crime ought to be bringing us back to conversations about economic justice.
5: That's right. And that's the reformer's argument. That's certainly Maya Wiley's argument that yes, we have to do something about the spike in gun violence, which is real. But if we just focus on the short term, we're just going to continue the cycle of mass incarceration that's been going on for 30 years. And so she was hoping to find a new way. And to be fair to Eric Adams, he still says he's hoping to find a new way to crack down in the short term, but also not lose sight of the root causes of crime. And they do have so much to do with economic injustice.
2: Brian Lehrer is the host of WNYC's The Brian Lehrer Show. Brian, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. And that's all we have for y'all today. We really appreciate you tuning in. And now a shout out to the hardworking team that puts this show together. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Jose Olivares. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Shamsundra and Milton Ruiz are our board ops. Vince Fairchild is our director. Jay Cowett is our sound designer. And Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in for Vega, and this is The Takeaway.